Well, this is, uh, as you see in your bulletin notes, Seeking Straying Disciples, part three. Originally, it was going to have one part, verses 10 through 20, and um, that didn't happen. Um, And originally, the second part was just going to have one part, but that didn't happen either. God's Word is so rich, and this section of Scripture is really, really important, um, and I want to illustrate for you why that is this morning. But let me recap a little bit where we've been. Matthew 18 is Jesus' fourth of five main teaching sections in the book of Matthew. And in this teaching section, what Jesus is doing is he is talking to the core group that is going to build up the church, the new covenant community, He's talking to his disciples, and he's instructing them in how they view one another, how they receive one another, how they interact with one another. So it's sometimes called the community discourse. And you you remember that this discourse is framed by two questions. One question in verse 1 in chapter 18, where the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. And then there's a second question going to be asked in verse 21, which, Lord willing, we will get to next week. And so really, in large measure, verses 1 through 20 are all intertwined together. One section flows right into another. In answer to that question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus answered his disciples and said, unless you turn and become like little children. He took a child and put them in their midst. Unless you become like one of these little children, in terms of dependence, in terms of not seeking your own honor, but the honor of your heavenly Father, then you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. But if you do, you do humble yourself in that way. You are utterly dependent on your Father. You're utterly dependent upon uh, Jesus then you will enter and you will be the greatest. And so um, God puts value on each individual disciple who humbles himself in that way. And that, that idea of the value that the Father places on an individual disciple is really illustrated in 18, 5 through 7, where Jesus says, if you receive one of these little ones, he's using little ones there to refer to disciples, any given disciple who has become like a child, but uh, if you receive one, you've received me. Or if you instead ensnare such a disciple, then the Father is going to judge you. And then so on and so forth. And in this section, where we're looking at 10 through 20, it's kind of tied together. And the way it starts is, again, with illustrating that value that the Father has for an individual disciple. Verse 10 says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. If you're a disciple, you have no right to despise another fellow disciple. You ought not to um, because of the value the Father places on them. And then he uses a, Jesus gives a short parable to illustrate the value that the Father places on an individual. A man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray. And that is an illustration for Jesus of a, a, a genuine disciple being taken astray by sin And then Jesus illustrates that the Father's heart is to regather, to go after that straying sheep and to regather that one into the fold. So you've got this tension that is set in that parable between the many, the corporate reality of the whole flock and the one and the value that the Father places on that one. So you can't despise a genuine disciple, an individual one, that even if they've gone astray because the Father values such a one. And by extension, the idea is Jesus is saying, uh, look what he says in verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, so it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. The Father values even a straying disciple so much that he's willing to invest significant resources in regathering that one. And so if the Father's heart is to do that, then he uses the means of the disciples of Jesus to regather regather a straying disciple, a disciple who has fallen into sin. But the question leaving verse 14 is this, how do you do that? How do you pursue someone, a fellow disciple who is straying into sin? And the answer to that question is 15 through 17, which is what we looked at last week. What we looked at last week is how do you correct 
with the right process. See, verses 15 through 20 altogether form the idea, and I put that there in your outline, that you're supposed to correct sin in the assembly. That's how you pursue a straying disciple. You correct sin in the assembly for the sake of repentance. And then verses 15 through 17 specify the process that Jesus would have a disciple to use on a fellow disciple. You see, this text is directed not just to leaders, but to every individual disciple of what will become the local church. Like I said last week, this is the second of two passages in Matthew, and in fact the whole Gospels where the church is explicitly mentioned. And it's important in that context. Verses 15 through 17, we'll recap it and walk through it just to form the context for verses 18 through 20, which is where we'll focus our time this morning. But I want to remind you that verses 15 through 17 are directed to an individual disciple. The U's, the U's, uh, Y-O-U, in that section are all singular. They're all singular. So let's walk through it just to remind ourselves of what's supposed to happen here. Verse 15, if your brother sins, wide open, doesn't really, Jesus doesn't specify, well, what's the nature of that sin? What does it look like? In the general context of the, uh, of the chapter, um, sin, uh, Jesus is thinking about serious sin that can lead to uh, destruction. It's heaven and hell are at stake. But Jesus just leaves it wide open. If your brother sins, so you're a disciple, you see who's a brother or a sister, it's just language of the family of disciples. You see a, a professing believer, and they're in sin. What are you supposed to do? This is a singular command directed to an individual disciple. Go. Go and do what? Go and uh, show them their faults. Go and lay out a case. The idea, we talked about this last week, is you lay out a case. You've seen someone sin. They've been ensnared in sin. To use some of the language earlier in the chapter. They've been ensnared in sin. They're straying. They're straying sheep. You go to them. You lay out a case. Say, brother or sister, here is what I saw you do. Uh, here is what God says. Here's what Jesus says from your word. You are in sin. You need to repent. And you do this privately between you and him alone. And notice the goal, the goal at the end of verse 15. This is the goal of the process. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal of this is not to, show, um, not to judge in such a way that you are exalting self. It's not self-focused. It's not prideful. The goal of this is gaining your brother or sister. It's the imagery of the lost sheep. The lost sheep has gone astray. How do you seek them? The goal for you is like the goal of the father to regather that lost sheep, that straying sheep, into the fold. That is the goal. If it doesn't happen, then we move to stage two. Stage two, verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take along with you another one or two in order that on the mouth of two witnesses or three, Every charge might be established. This is, we looked at last week, the, this is based in Old Testament uh, principles of you have two or three witnesses in any legal case to establish, uh, to establish the case. But what's going on here is that the individual original disciple that observes someone else sinning, we'll call him the prosecuting disciple, the prosecuting disciple goes and finds another one or two people, another one or two witnesses they may not have even seen the same sin that the individual disciple did, but he's bringing them along to do what? To now, with two or three present, to lay out his case of, here, brother, I saw you in sin. This is what is wrong. This is against what God is saying. This is against what Jesus is saying. You need to repent. And those, two, those extra one or two are there, are he, there to observe the case that is being laid out and also to observe the response of the sinning disciple. And again, the goal, the hope is that by bringing extra pressure on that individual sinning disciple to gain that brother, to bring them back into the fold, because that is God's heart. All of this is driven by love. This is what love looks like. If you see a straying sheep, how do you love that brother or sister? But suppose they don't listen yet. What's the next stage? Verse 17, if they refuse. So now it's a stubborn refusal of this sinning brother or sister refuses to listen to the two or three. 
Now what happens? Command is to speak, and this command is singular. It's referring to the original prosecuting disciple saying, all right, you've, you brought along an extra one or two, so now there's two or three. Now you, as the prosecuting disciple, the one who observed the sin originally, you speak to the church. And this is the second usage of the idea of church in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 16, Jesus says, you are Peter, you are stone, and on this rock I will build my church. But the word church just means assembly, and Jesus is talking about building the new covenant assembly, which is built up of people who confess him to be the Christ, who repent and turn their allegiance to him, and trust themselves to him. And he, we said that as the Davidic king, the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate Davidic king is a temple builder, so he's conceiving of the church as an assembly and as a temple assembly. And we'll see that reinforced in this passage that we look at today as well. But the idea is now you're bringing extra pressure. Now you're saying as the individual prosecuting disciple, you bring it up to the whole assembly so that the whole assembly can now go after the sinning brother. And again, the hope is that that person would be gained. They would be brought back from their straying. But then there's a final stage. But if even to the church, they refuse to listen let him be to you. And the you there is singular. It starts with that original prosecuting disciple. How did that brother start? Well, the original prosecuting disciple saw a brother sinning. And now uh, the command is your perspective needs to shift. You thought of that sinning brother as a brother or sister, as a fellow disciple. But now, having come through this whole process without that repentance, let him be to you, let the sinning one be to you as a, as a foreigner and a tax collector. And we said, what does that mean? A foreigner is one who is outside the assembly. Uh, if you were a good Jew, uh, you didn't have, uh, you had dealings with foreigners, but not to a great extent. They were outside the covenant community. The idea of a tax collector or a toll collector, what we said, like Matthew, is that one would have been inside the assembly of Israel but they were despised. They were conceived of as traitors because they often charged more than they needed to, and so they took advantage of their fellow brothers and sisters. And Jesus is saying, you go through this process with a sinning brother, a sinning disciple, the ultimate stage, if they don't repent, which is the hope, is that they become a foreigner, an outsider, and a traitor, one who has taken advantage of the assembly. Even at this stage... Even at this stage, the hope is that this, this is the ultimate pressure that the church can bring to bear on a, uh, a sinner to say that you are amongst us, but now you're, um, you're outside, you're expelled. Why? Um, one side of it, there's two things going on. One side of it is to bring pressure so that person would repent. There's still the hope that that person would be gained ultimately. And yet, if that can't happen, then the flip side of this is for purity in the assembly. Purity in the assembly. That's stated in the Old Testament uh, assembly text that we talked about last week. It is also the idea in the New Testament as well. And like I said, uh, that's directed towards the individual disciple, first and foremost. Let him be to you, that you is singular. Let him be to you. You thought this one was a fellow brother, but now you can't view them that way if you've gone through this whole process. And since the whole church involved, that perspective is also taken on by the whole church. Now that's the process. So that's just a rehashing of where we were at last week. But the question comes, the question comes, uh, to Jesus' original audience, the original disciples, and then by extension, Matthew's original audience of Jewish Christians. But it, the same question for our own day, how in the world do you think you have the authority to do that? I mean, think about, let's just think about our own culture and time. To go through that process and to talk about that process is very uncomfortable in our, I mean, in the church let alone in the culture at large, trying to explain what's going on. Because that seems harsh. That seems unloving. If you're tolerant, you allow someone to come in. You welcome people irrespective of how they behave. So this flies in the face of our own culture, 
And so the question that gets raised is the same question that um, would have been there for Jesus' original disciples and that Jesus answers in verses 18 through 20. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus is going to answer in verses 18 through 20. The second part of this whole process is you're doing this correction, but you're doing this correction with the delegated authority of heaven. Nothing less than the delegated authority of heaven. Don't mishear me. I am affirming that the church, the local church, which is what is in view in this passage, has a delegated authority on earth to speak on behalf of heaven. That is what I am saying. Now, as soon as I say that, we get uncomfortable. On three levels, we get uncomfortable. One, we don't like, um, we don't like thinking about having the, ch- we don't like to think about the church having authority, any authority. Why? One, we as a people do not like authority. We do not like it. And especially in our culture, we don't like institutionalized religion. You hear this quite often, the church is an institution. On what basis do you make that claim? Of course it is. But we don't like that. We don't like to think of the church that way. Our culture doesn't like to think of that that way. Our culture doesn't like authority. The authority of the self is all that is important. The authority of the individual, not of institutions. Second reason we don't like to talk about this is abuses of authority. We can look back at history. We can look back at things like the Crusades of things that were horrible, unimaginable things that were done in the name of Christianity and the authority of the church and we can uh, say that was wrong, and so we want to get away from that. We want to get away of talking that kind of a, a, a abuse of authority. And not just in ancient history, we can see even in our own day, in many instances, abuse of authority in the church. And so we don't like to talk about authority in the church. Third reason we are not comfortable with talking about the authority of the local church is that we are Protestants. We are Protestants which means that we protested, or our group protested against uh, an exercise of the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, and so by our very nature, we're suspicious of an overreaching church authority, and much of that is valid, uh, understanding what that context was. But the fact of the matter remains, the scriptures are the ultimate norm. And what Jesus says here is he says that the church, the local church, has a delegated authority to speak on behalf of heaven. Now that is an audacious claim, and I can't make it, uh, but Jesus can make it. So let us see what the text says about this. And as we walk through this, I want you to feel the weight and the implications of the church, the local church, of Faith Bible Church in Hood River having this kind of authority. Let's walk through the text together. So Jesus starts saying in 18 through 20, he's answering the question, okay, you go through this process, but on what authority do you do this? Now, here's an interesting thing you need to note as we walk through 18 through 20. The yous in this section are plural. Remember I said the use in 15 through 17, they're all singular. They're focused on that individual prosecuting disciple. But now the church gets involved, the community of disciples gets involved. Well, now the use in the 18 through 20 are plural because now it's focusing on how does the church, how does the local church have the authority to do this? And Jesus answers that. Verse 18, truly I say to you, plural, I'm saying to you, disciples, I'm saying to you, local church. And when Jesus says that, truly I say to you, he's highlighting what he's about to say. He's highlighting what he's about to say. Well, what does he say? As many things as you bind upon the earth will be bound in heaven, and as many things as you loose upon the earth will be loosed in heaven. Notice a couple things. First, there's a dynamic happening between earth and heaven which has been a big theme in the Gospel of Matthew. Even the idea of the kingdom of heaven, which is a key phrase in Matthew, it's the idea of the kingdom coming from heaven, which hasn't come yet, but which will come, the messianic kingdom, which will come in the the final days. 
and, and Matthew often contrasts that, has that dichotomy in mind of the earth and the heavens, and that is present here. Second thing to notice is this language of binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. Now, at a very li- literal, tangible level, uh, you can actually see this later in the Gospel of Matthew. This is like tying something up, binding, or untying something. That is the idea of this language. You can actually see that uh, in regards to the donkey that Jesus like rides into Jerusalem. There's a verse that talks about untying the donkey, loosing them, and you know uh, where he was bound. So at a very literal level, that is what these words kind of indicate. However, we have seen this idea of binding and loosing before. And in fact, it is in the other passage in Matthew which mentions the church. Go back to Matthew 16. So we're going to take a little detour to remind you. We've kind of gone through this territory before, but to remind you of this binding, loosing idea. Because we need to understand that to understand how Jesus is using it in this passage. So go back to Matthew 16. And you remember what happened in Matthew 16, uh, Simon Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, and Jesus responds to that declaration. Uh, and as part of that, he says this in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, Peter means stone, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my assembly. The Messiah is a temple builder. He's building a temple. He's building a temple that is an assembly of people, a new covenant assembly. I tell you, you're a stone, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's our language. And we talked about this when we were in this passage First thing to notice is that binding and loosing idea is connected with the concept of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So another way to say that is uh, to talk about binding and loosing is to talk about exercising the use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do the keys open? Well, in context of Matthew 16, you've got mention of a gate, a gate of Hades. But what we said as we work through this passage is all of that language and the concepts that Jesus is invoking actually were, uh, were invoked even earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Or another way to talk about this language of the keys, the, Jesus is going to give the keys to Peter, but uh, who first had the keys? Well, Jesus did. And did Jesus use those keys in Matthew at all? Well, in fact, he did, I would argue, in Matthew 5 through 7. Go back there, and we'll try to tie this together for you. And we covered some of this ground in Matthew 16, but we're, we'll just remind ourselves of what we said. Remember what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is directed to Jesus' disciples. It's directed to those who have already repented, turned their allegiance from sin and self, and are committed to following Jesus. And what the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus saying, Here's how you live as a kingdom citizen. If you are following me, then this is what life looks like. And, if you, and where Jesus ends, by the time he gets to the end of the sermon, if you don't live this way, then you're not going to enter the kingdom. You claim to follow me, you claim to repent and trust yourself to me, great. Well, that has implications for your whole life. And if you don't live that way, then you're not truly mine, and you're not going to enter. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he goes through specific aspects of uh, commands of God. And he says, you may have heard that it was said by guys like the scribes and Pharisees, here's how the law applies to you. But I say to you... Uh, here is the command of God, and here's how it applies to you. Here's how it is binding on you for your way of life. And that was common language at that time, to talk about, uh, talking about and teaching the commands of God and not only talking about them in the abstract, but talking about how they apply to you. That was the language of binding and loosing in that culture and in that time. 
And so what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5 through chapter 7 is he says, here's the way of life that is binding on you as a disciple. And then notice what he does in his conclusion. I'll just highlight a couple passages. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 13 And I want to tie all these concepts together. Matthew 7, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, they're talking about the same realities, I believe. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, the the idea of a way or a path, is a common way of talking about you're walking in God's commandments. You're walking the way that God wants you to. And what Jesus is visualizing is life as either a narrow way or a broad way leading up to a narrow gate that leads you into the kingdom of heaven or a broad gate that leads to destruction, or we might say in the language of Matthew 16, the gate of Hades. And so what is Jesus doing? He's saying, you have to walk by this way. It is binding on you to walk in this way. If you do not, you are on the broad path of destruction, not on the narrow path. He says later on, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is Jesus exercising the keys of the kingdom. He's saying, it's binding on you to live this way, um, and you need to do so, otherwise you are not. You may claim to be my disciple. You may say, Lord, Lord, but if you've only got a profession and no real action in your life that matches what the Sermon on the Mount is saying, then you're not going to enter. That is Jesus binding and loosing, wielding the keys of the kingdom. In Matthew 16, then, he then hands those off to Peter, and by extension, the rest of the apostles, for the sake of telling the new covenant community, the birthed church, the church that's coming, here's what Jesus commands you to do and how you ought to live as a disciple. And what's amazing in our passage in Matthew 18 is the power of the keys is not only belongs to the apostles, but then to, conceived of properly, to the local church. And this makes sense given the context of church discipline. Because what has this process all been about? It's been basically, a, a, it's been described in legal terms. You're confronting a brother or sister on sin. You're walking them through this whole process. You're calling them to repentance. There's witnesses that are establishing a charge. And what is the assembly saying? What is the church saying to that, that person, who, that sinner who's not repenting? It is binding on you to not live the way you are living and to live the way that Jesus told you. The assembly is speaking into that individual sinner's life and saying, here is what is binding on you as far as an application of Jesus' commands and how to live. And if you're not walking that way, we cannot affirm you as a disciple. We can no longer, uh, we can in no way affirm that you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is exercising the authority of the keys. And so what does Jesus mean? As many things as you, plural, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and as many things as you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's saying the local church, when it speaks in this sort of way, um, is trying to discern as stewards of God, as stewards of Jesus, they're trying to discern all right, uh, this way of life is binding on this disciple, or no, actually reviewing the details, this is not binding, he's loosed. That's what they're trying to do. But whatever they come down on, and there's more to add to this, and I'll, I'll say it in a minute, but basically what Jesus is saying, you're saying that on earth, you're going to be backed in that assessment by your Father in heaven. You're binding this on earth. You're making this authoritative decision uh, on earth. It's going to be backed by heaven. It will be 
bound. It will be loosed in heaven. Now, you're like, really? Is that really what he is saying? Is that really what he's saying? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't say it just once. And in one particular way, he says it again in verse 19. He says it again, and he looks at the whole issue from a slightly different perspective. Verse 19, again, meaning what? He's going to say what he just said, or is he going to address the same topic he was just addressing in verse 18? And he's going to address it again. And he's going to address it from a different perspective. Again, truly I say to you, now he repeats the same attention-getting, highlighting words like, okay, I've already highlighted it once, let's highlight it again. Again, truly I say to you that if two from you agree upon the earth, you see that same language, upon the earth, concerning any matter which soever they might ask. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about two people. Well, which two people? Well, in context, it's got to be the minimum number of witnesses that you need to establish the case. Remember what it said? You start one-on-one, and then what do you do? You take one or two extra along with you that every case might be, uh, every matter might be established on the evidence of two or three total witnesses. So who are the two here? That's the minimum number you need to establish a case in the assembly. And Jesus is saying, all right, we're still talking about the same issue. You got two of you that agree. They've seen the case laid out in the sinning brother's um, uh, situation, and they both agree. This is sin. This can't be let go. They agree. The case hinges on these two. Because once, if the sinning brother refuses to listen to these two, then it goes to the church. And the whole case hinges on the two or three's testimony. But what are these two or three doing? They're agreeing on earth concerning the matter of the sinning brother. But notice what else they're doing. They're not just agreeing about this matter. They're also asking. You see that language there? Whatsoever they ask. Well, what are they asking about? They're praying. They're praying to the Father who is in heaven, which is how verse 19 ends. So, two of you agree upon earth concerning any matter whatsoever they ask, it will future. Notice the future in verse 18. We've got it matched by a future here. It will happen for them from my Father who is in heaven. So, it's really clear in verse 19 that the process is you've got two Uh, These two witnesses, they agree on the case. They are seeking to bind this person in a a particular way of life and living. They agree that this is a faithful way of representing Jesus on earth, but they're bathing the whole process in prayer. They're asking for guidance. They're asking, and then ultimately, as they agree, they're asking the Father, we have gone through this. We believe that this is sin. We believe that this is how uh, Jesus would have us be his stewards on earth. And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be backed. Your decision is going to be backed by the Father who is in heaven. A couple clarifying things we need to say at this point. This is not a willy-nilly authority. There are two types of authority in reality. One is absolute authority. God alone has that. God alone has absolute authority. So then what is the other type of authority? Delegated authority. And that's everyone, every other authority that exists is a delegated authority. This is a delegated authority. Now, a delegated authority does not mean that you can do whatever you want to do. A delegated authority means that you, as a steward of the one who has absolute authority, had better match his wishes in how you exercise your delegated authority. So what that means is for us in 18 through 19, this is a statement by Jesus that the local church has authority, but it is a delegated authority, and it is a delegated authority exercise of the keys of the kingdom as Jesus would, as his steward community. So This is not carte blanche for the church to just say whatever, and God's going to, well, I guess I got to back that, even though that's ridiculous. No, 
No, this is Jesus saying, you as a stewardship authority, the church as a stewardship authority, if they do it prayerfully, if they do it as stewards of Jesus seeking to match what Jesus would say as if he's there, then it's going to be backed by heaven. It's real authority, but it's delegated and a stewardship authority. Notice the upon earth and heaven language. That is significant. You know, uh, as you walk through Matthew, and even as we talk about Christianity generally, sometimes we talk about, well, we talk about uh, the, the church as the kingdom, or we talk about, you know, evangelism as growing the kingdom or things like that. That's not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? Well, it's what has been true from Old Testament to New Testament. The kingdom of God is when God, through his chosen king, is ruling over the whole world. Well, that chosen king is Jesus Christ, and it is when he comes back and reigns over the whole world. So what is the church then? The church right now, even as it is described in verses 18 through 19, is the representative of heaven and that kingdom that is going to come from heaven on earth. I think the most helpful illustration of this is of an embassy. This is a, uh, I didn't dream this up. I got it from someone else, but I think it is very helpful to think of. There is a U.S. embassy in Switzerland. When you enter the U.S. embassy in Switzerland, you are on U.S. soil. And that U.S. embassy in Switzerland has the authority, to an extent, a delegated authority, to speak on behalf of the U.S. government. It is a similar situation with the church. The church is not the kingdom. But when you enter the church, the gather, the church is not the building, the church is the people, the members that make up that local church. When you enter the gathering, as we are right now here, when you enter the gathering, you are on kingdom territory. It is not the full kingdom, but it is kingdom territory and has the authorization from heaven, if it does its stewardship right, to speak on behalf of of heaven on earth. It is an embassy. And you're like, really? Why? And here's another question. Why in the world would God give such authority to men? We, we in the church, we are, re, we are sinners. We are fallible. Um, and a group of fallible people getting together will do fallible things. We are fallible people. We are sinners. We are redeemed sinners by God's grace, but we are sinners nonetheless. Why in the world would God give such authority to people? Well, you get sort of the answer of that in verse 20. So Jesus has been sporting. Here's the authority that you have, local church, to do this. And then how does Jesus kind of give the final support in verse 20? Four, which indicates that Jesus is giving support to what he just said in the statement that follows. For where two or three are gathered into my name, there I am in their midst. Now, what does that mean? First, who are the two or three? Well, it's the same two or three that we've been talking about since verse 15. Well, verse 16. But it's the same two or three. It's the two or three witnesses. It's the two or three upon which the whole case against the sinning brother rests. But notice how Jesus characterizes it. It's not just the two or three. It's the two or three being gathered into my name. Now, the construction here, your, your translation probably reads, gathered in my name. And the preposition here, this is where grammar is important, it, it, it usually it designates into, like you're going into a place. And specifically in Matthew, every time that it talks about gathering into, it uses this word for gathering together with this preposition, it's always gathering into a location. For instance, similar construction is used later when it's talking about the trial of Jesus and you've got the scribes and the Pharisees and they are gathered into the high priest's palace. What does that mean? They're coming together as an assembly in a specific place. But what's interesting here is that the gathering is happening 
into, and you would expect a place, but instead of a place, you have my name. Jesus' name. Jesus is conceiving of his name in a physical location. Now, that's odd. Until you turn back to the Old Testament and you read about how God did put his name on a physical place. It was called the temple. God put his name on the temple in Jerusalem and said, here's where my name is. And remember what we've been arguing from Matthew 16. Jesus says, I will build, and we would expect, oh, you're going to build a temple because you're the Davidic team. I will build my assembly. It's an assembly of stones. It's an assembly of people. It's an assembly of believers in Jesus' name. And that is where God's name dwells in this age. And that's what Jesus is alluding to with this phrase. You've got these two or three witnesses, but it's not just them acting on themselves. It's not just two or three getting together and say, all right, guys, we're going um, to discipline as two or three believers this other, this other guy. No, they are gathered into the place where Jesus' name is. Where is Jesus' name? It is in the temple assembly on earth. Where is that? It is the local church. God's presence dwells in the gathered assembly of the local church in this age. You want to be near God as you would, if, if you know, you think about in the Old Testament, right? There's the temple, there's the tabernacle, I'm drawing near. And you get that sense of reverence and awe, drawing near to the Holy of Holies. Uh, and you're like, well, that was Old Testament. No, the temple still exists. And it exists right now, right here, because Jesus has put his name on this assembly. And Jesus says, there I am in their midst. So the whole backing, why in the world would the Father in heaven listen to, on the basis of two or three witnesses, the assembly binding and loosing, exercising the keys of king? And that's, that seems ridiculous, except for the fact that Jesus says, I am there. I am, to speak presently, here, in this assembly, in the midst, backing the authority. And if Jesus is backing it, then you better believe that the Father's going to listen. That is how all of this works. So what do we take away from this? What do we take away from all of this? Um, not just 18 through 20, but 15 through 17. Last week we said 15 through 17, you, meaning individual you, like every single you who's a member here at Faith Bible Church, you need to correct and participate, you need to participate in correcting sin and fellow disciples in the local church. And we talked about in order to do that, you need to develop good biblical confrontation skills. And we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. But what I want you to come away with this morning is the authority which is so neglected in our time and our place, the authority that the Father and the Son have given to the local church. The local church, this local church, bears Jesus' name. It is a temple, not the building, the people, the stones that come together to assemble. You don't have the temple until they assemble as stones. It is a temple. It is an embassy. It speaks for the future kingdom now. It speaks on behalf of heaven with the backing of heaven when it exercises its stewardship authority properly. Jesus is present with the gathered assembly. What do we learn from this? One, very simple, gathering physically Jesus, uh, uh, gathering physically is essential. You could all be at home in your PJs, drinking coffee, sitting on Zoom, and I could be standing right here, and I could be on video, and you could be hearing the same sermon. We could even do the same songs. It would not be church. Because why? Because the nature of the temple in this area is the physical gathering, the assembling of people together, and only when that assembling happens, does the church act on Jesus' name? An individual disciple doesn't have this authority. It is the gathering that has this 
authority. Gathering is essential. When Jesus, we've talked a lot about this. You see it in Matthew. You see it in the New Testament. What is the gospel? The gospel is that you are a sinner, that you deserve God's wrath, uh, that you cannot save yourself, uh, that uh, Jesus died in place of those who would entrust themselves to him, um, and that he imputes his righteousness, he counts his righteousness to those who entrust themselves to him, such that they will know God and enter that kingdom in the future. That is the, the gospel. And so what is the call? The call of the gospel is for you to repent, to lay down arms of individual authority and individual autonomy and living for yourself and living for sin, to repent, to turn allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Jesus and his work on your behalf so that you can know and love God forever. That is the gospel. And that, that response of repentance and faith will save you. Jesus is saving you through that. However, Jesus' program is not just saving individuals. It is saving a people. And it is giving that people a responsibility to gather together, to be a temple, to be an embassy, to manifest his name on earth. Jesus saves people into a church. The New Testament doesn't think about willy-nilly, uh, lone ranger Christ Christians off by themselves. That is a deadly place to be. He saves into the church. And he not only saves individuals into the church, he gives each individual disciple a job, a joyful responsibility to come together, to be a part of that assembly. To do what? To exercise the authority that God has given on the local assembly. That's all. How does a local church exercise that authority? Well, obviously, in this context, it is church discipline. But remember, in the whole context of church discipline, the authority to say you're outside the community, remember the goal in the whole process is to say to gain your brother, to say that to come back, to be gained inside the assembly. The authority to say you're outside is the authority to say that you're inside. How does that happen? In our church, that happens through baptism and membership. In membership, we are not just adding to our roster. We are not just saying that this is, you have the authority to vote. We are saying, we affirm your discipleship. By all that you, we can see, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are wielding the keys of the, as, a, as an assembly, not as individuals. As an assembly, we are affirming that by all that you can see, that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are following him. Join us. Join the joyful, the, the, the responsibility of carrying Jesus' name together. That is what baptism and membership is all about. It is also what the Lord's Supper is all about. Every time that someone partakes in that table, we as a church are taking on ourselves the responsibility of saying everyone who comes up and partakes in that cup is, by all that we can see, a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are affirming their discipleship. And then, if needs be, that's the affirmation side, but as Jesus is talking about here, we need to go after a sinning disciple, someone who's claiming to bear the name of Jesus but is not doing so faithfully. In love, we seek them, we seek to gain them, but if they will not repent, then we exclude them. From what? Yes, from physically gathering, but even like we said, foreigner and a tax collector, you don't eat with those people. You exclude them from the Lord's table. All that comes together. Do you feel the weight? The weight of this authority. And it's not a matter of, well, I don't want it, so I'm not going to take it. No, Jesus gave it to us. He gave it to us. I didn't give it to you. He gave it to, you, to us. We don't have an option. He saved us and given us this job. We will either do it well or we will do it poorly, but we are held accountable to doing it. And so you must first recognize as a church the authority you do have as members and then to use that authority well. Dependent on Jesus, praying, bathing everything with prayer because we understand we are fallible human beings redeemed only by the blood of Jesus and yet he has given us such a marvelous and 
and high calling, not only as individuals, but as a church, to exercise authority on earth, to be an embassy on earth, to be a temple on earth. It is, the stakes could not be higher, the weight of authority could not be greater, and yet we are called to this. We are called to correct with the delegated authority of heaven. We are called to correct with the right process. We are called to correct sin in the assembly for the sake of repentance. We're called to seek and not despise straying disciples. We're called to all of this. Let's pray. It is, Jesus, you are at the right hand of the Father in heaven. As we see in Revelation, you know each of your local churches. You know them as a lampstand. Why is it called a lampstand? To be a, a light, to be visible, to be a, a display in a dark world of life. Lord, we thank you for giving us this church, Faith Bible Church, here. And Lord, you've already given us this authority, this responsibility, and the only question is, will we exercise it rightly in the way that you would help us Help us to do so rightly. Help us to take this seriously. Help us to do it joyfully. Help us to do it as stewards, seeking to manifest you and manifest your name in the world. Lord, help us to do it right. Help us to be zealous to do it right for the sake of your name, for the sake of your honor. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who have not submitted themselves to the authority of a local church, that you would convict them and draw them into partnership for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus. We pray even for this afternoon after the potluck, as the members gather together to make decisions, they're exercising this authority. I pray that we would do that with joy and sobriety all at the same time. Give us grace and give us wisdom. We would ask for the sake of your name and your honor, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name, amen.